We began a few Sundays ago with a deep dive into Romans chapter 1. And there we learned that the downfall of our personal lives and all of humanity begins when we fail to honor God and give Him thanks as God. I outlined for you, if you will, the chapter, and we looked at how when we fail to do that, we know better. And that leads us down to dark and foolish hearts and thinking and into all types of sin. And I encouraged us that we had to have the proper view of God if we are to properly honor and thank Him. One of the authors who I've read on this said this, We can never know who or what we are till we know at least something of what God is. We can never know who or what we are till we know at least something of what God is. And I think that's true for us today, whether that be the good, proper understanding of who and what God is, or the negative understanding, as in we know and then do the opposite, or we know and do the right thing. But knowing who and what God is, is absolutely essential for knowing who and what we are. And so from this journey, I laid out two initial thoughts, and today we're going to look at some more. So if you've been taking notes, you'll know that last week, I, had, uh, I labeled these as concepts, which the first concept is kind of funny because a concept is something you concept, you understand. But concept number one was that God is incomprehensible. <laughs> so it's counterintuitive. But that's the point. So the first concept is God is incomprehensible. He is not like anything else. We use these words sometimes to say God is like this, But we must be careful in how we do it because we begin to equate God with what he has created because that's all that we know. And we looked at the proper understanding of this is God is not uh, like as in an adjective. He's not as something else or he's not similar to something else. He is truly incomprehensible. And that is certainly a thought that we must sit with and consider. The second thing that we mentioned last week was that God has attributes. And attributes are something that is true about God. There is not a specific number of them. It is not these parts that all make up the whole. These are things that God is. And an attribute is whatever he reveals to us. And he does that through nature. He does that through scripture. And he does that through Jesus Christ. These are not parts of God, but a single solitary unity. And we discuss the concern about thinking these as traits as we might have, because as human beings, our traits come and go. I might be patient one day and not the next. I might be loving one day and less the next. That doesn't vary with God, so he doesn't have traits the way we think of them. He has attributes, and the attributes are things that we can and do know of him. And we should make an effort to grasp both the idea that he's incomprehensible and that he has some of these attributes. And so today I want to look at a few of these attributes that God has revealed to us. And so if you're taking notes again, the third concept here, we're going to talk about the self-sufficiency of God. God is self-sufficient. The self-sufficiency of God. 
There's many scriptures that we could look at. We're going to go over a few of them. But specifically, John 5.26, in the middle of that verse says, The Father has life in himself. The Father has life in himself. God is what he is in himself, not in anything else. God has no needs. Think about this for a minute. God has no needs. He does not need anything. He is completely whole in and of himself, and he has no needs. If God needed something, then that is a direct violation of the other things that we know about God, that he is self-sufficient, that he is complete, that he is whole. We have a hard time understanding this because we all need something. It's the very nature of who we are as someone who is created. I need oxygen to be able to live. The trees need the carbon dioxide. Thankfully, that's a nice mixture. Everything in life needs something else except for God because God has no need. There is nothing that God needs. There is nothing that he has to have from us. God is complete in himself. This is a very important concept for us to remember. The self-sufficiency of God. Now we have a relationship with God, but that relationship is voluntary, not one that is necessary. Now think about that for a minute. We have a relationship with God. We've talked about this for years. God desires to have a relationship with us but not because he needs it, because he is voluntarily engaging with us. Now, we need it, but that's on the other side of the spectrum. And so the idea that God needs something doesn't exist. Acts 17 and 25 says this, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God the Father is complete in and of himself and needs nothing from me or anyone. End of story. And again, this is contrary to everything that we know about life because we all need something. And I want to pause here just for a minute. And I guess I'll use the word attack, a concept that I think sometimes is common, whether we've truly uh, said that, yes, this is something we believed. It's probably something we've heard and maybe even something we've sometime have thought about. God did not create us because he needed us. God did not create us because he needed something to do. And so on and so forth. Now that may sound kind of silly, but if you think about how a lot of people view God, that's really how they view him. This is some kind of like cosmic entertainment for God. It's not that. Somehow that God needs us to worship him or he would be less of a God. That's not true either. And so this idea that I fulfill some type of need for God is impossible to actually be true because God has no needs because he is who he is in and of himself, apart from me, apart from the world. And so there is no need for me. All of mankind could at a single moment stop believing in God. And what would that change about him? Absolutely nothing. 
We could all say we're all atheists, and it wouldn't change anything about who God is any more than I can close my eyes and say the sun disappeared. It's there, whether I see it or not. And we are the same way. Whether we believe in God or not, it doesn't change who He is. It doesn't change His power. It doesn't change His holiness. There is nothing that changes who God is. Why? Because He is incomprehensible and because He exists in Himself and is sufficient unto Himself. And if we were to stop praising God, the Bible tells us in Luke that the rocks would cry out. See, we have a choice, and they don't. God doesn't need our help. I've mentioned this a few times over the last few months. If you look through the Scriptures, sometimes we focus on the wrong things. And I think this goes back to our improper view of God. Because we look through the scriptures and we look at all the amazing accounts of the events that happened in that day. And somehow we lift up and we praise men and women in the scriptures. We look at Ruth and we think of her faith. We look at Daniel and we think of his courage. We look at David and we think of his heart. But understand, whether those men and women throughout history ever existed or not, it doesn't matter one bit, and it doesn't change God. Because God is God in and of Himself, and God will have His will however He wants to have it, regardless of how we operate. And so the thing to remember is that while the Scriptures tell us a story of God and man together, the focus has to always be on God, not on the man or woman who is in the story. Do you see my point? And too many times we miss this, we begin to focus on the characters and the people in the Bible and not on the God who is moving and living and breathing and letting us participate. And so we must be careful not to lose the focal point of the Scriptures, which is God. God exists for Himself, and man exists to glorify God. But whether man does that or not has no impact on God. So let me ask you this. If God doesn't need us, and it doesn't enhance God if we praise Him more, then why does he bother dealing with our rebellious selves? Why does he care? Again, hold this concept. God doesn't need us. His status isn't increased or decreased because that's impossible to do, whether we love him or serve him more. So why on earth does he possibly care about me when I very likely let him down every few minutes that I'm alive? Why does he care? See, this is the beauty of it. When we understand that God is self-sufficient in himself, then we truly begin to understand what it means to have grace and mercy and love. Because God doesn't have to give us any of those things. And God isn't increased, because that's impossible, when we give those things back to Him. He voluntarily chooses to give us grace and mercy and love. And when we understand that properly, what can we do but fall to our knees and say, thank you for the unmerited favor 
for the mercy that you give, for the grace that you bestow upon us that you don't have to do, that I don't even come close to deserving, but you choose to love me in said ways. And so when we truly understand that God is who he is in and of himself, and I look at myself, I begin to align with where I should be which is to give him the honor and the praise and the glory and to understand deeply what these things mean. To understand and to grasp what it means that he loves me, that he has grace, that he has mercy and hope. God is self-sufficient in and of himself. And yet even though I disappoint him, he still loves me. Wow. Even though I add nothing to who he is. He still loves me. Very few of us have relationships like this. Very few of us can truly love somebody and not have it returned. It's part of how we're made. But whether I love God or not, it doesn't make a difference. He still loves me. He still sent his son to die for me, regardless of my state. Now, concept number four. is the eternity of God. God is eternal. The eternity of God. We use this word in our everyday language, and we use it very carelessly. But when I say God is eternal, I, we also use this word, we misuse this word, I literally mean, okay, he is eternal, without end, without beginning. As I said, we, we banter this word around, we use its various forms all of the time, and we'll say, well, this is lasting forever. You might be thinking that right now. But it's not lasting forever. There will be an end. That's hyperbole. We're exaggerating. But when I say that God is eternal, I don't mean it in a hyperbolic way. I don't mean it as an exaggeration. I mean, God doesn't have a beginning, and God does not have an end. He simply is, and that is eternity. You ever tried to think about that for a while? I really, truly challenge you to do that sometime. It's hard. And you end up going, I don't get it. Why can't we get it? Because we're not made that way. Proverbs 20 and 2 says that God is from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Everlasting everlasting, from horizon to horizon, from infinity into infinity. Don't finish the rest of that. Begin is a time word. We say something began. It means something started. That's a word that we use to talk about something that has a starting point. God does not have a beginning He's outside of time. He has no past and he has no future. Now, if we were to tell somebody that, we'd find it highly offensive, wouldn't we? Some young person comes to see you and you're like, hey, you know, you you have no future. (laughs) Whoa, that sounds bad. 
Because we are so time-oriented, we cannot imagine that there is eternity. But God is eternity. He doesn't have a beginning, and he does not have an end. God dwells in eternity, and time dwells within God. God made time, so therefore he is outside of it. So when we see, and we do on occasion, I could spend weeks talking about the times, we'll see a time reference in the scripture. That's for our benefit, not because he's beholden to it. Because we can't think outside of time, so there are references in the scripture, well, it would say from time to time, etc., indicating to us in a way that we can understand, or at least try to, that these things are going on, but God doesn't see it that way. He sees the end at the same time as the beginning. God is eternity. Revelation 4 and 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All three tenses, past, present, future, right there in the one verse. God was, he is, and he will be. And again, we're using these human words to try and describe what we can't. God is eternal. We cannot escape time. But God can, because he made it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. The end and the beginning are but one view for God. Now here's something that I think is kind of tragic, and I've struggled with this for years reading uh, Ecclesiastes, which is a, well, it's a tough book. We are made for eternity, but we dwell in time. So, like, how old were Adam and Eve when they were made? I don't know. Was that a thing? I I don't know how it worked. How long were they in the garden? I don't have a clue. We're made for something that lasts forever. We are made for an eternal union with Christ that goes on forever. Yet we dwell, we live our daily lives inside of this box that we call time. That is unforgiving. Just a quick example. Where did October go? I don't know. But I I feel like it was just yesterday and it was like September. And it's gone. And time seems to speed up, but the reality is it doesn't. It's going the same. We are beholden to it. We are made for eternity, but have to live in time. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity inside of us. In other words, we know that there's something not right. We know that we are made for something that lasts forever. We are made for what lasts forever? For God who is eternal. And inside of us somehow, God gives us a little bit of eternity and says right there, you will struggle with this for however long you physically live. Because we know there's something more. We know there's something that lasts. We know that we are inside the confinement of this world and he puts inside of us eternity. And what's eternity? Him. We're made for him. 
give you another quote. All within us cries for life and permanence, and everything around us reminds us of mortality and change. We like things the way they are, but everything changes. And we want to live forever, but we can't. And if you look around at many people today, I dare say that some of the most afraid people we have are the ones who are furthest from God because they're doing everything they can to grasp what little bit of life we have here. And they're terrified of the future. And you look at Christians, strong Christians, who understand who God is, who worship him as God, who understand he's eternal, and they're willing to do what? To go to their own cross. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because there's eternity. See, this isn't us being careless with our lives. This is us understanding who God is and who we are in relationship to God, and that if God is eternal... And I love God, and God loves me, and we know each other as He has designed it for, then I will have an everlasting life after this one with Him. How long does it last? Forever. How long is that? I have no idea. But when I get there, I'll know. Because I'll finally be outside of time and can understand. Moses understood this. Turn with me to Psalms 90. I want to read this chapter. And I want you to keep in mind the things I just said about eternity. (coughs) Very likely Moses wrote this near the end of his life. Psalm chapter 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Let me just stop there. All generations. How long? Forever. See where Moses is going with this? You've been our dwelling place for all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence." For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Let me pause there for just a minute. We see that Moses, in his wisdom and in his experience, who has been in the very presence of God multiple times, whose face shone because he had been so close to God near the end of his life as saying, look, God, you are eternal. You are infinite. You, we have been with you from the very beginning, from the start to the end, and even before and after. For all eternity, we are yours. And so how does he conclude? Verse 12, 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let me just pause there again. I'm sorry. Number our days. Ben, you just said God's infinite. That's true. We are not. Also very true. How many days do we have? I don't know. That's why we have to number them. That's why we have to remember that in comparison to God who is infinite, we are nothing. And whatever few days that we have, that's like the grass that comes in the morning and dies in the afternoon, that's like a sigh, is our life. And we ought to take account of however many days that we have and spend them wisely. How do we spend them wisely? By praising the one who is eternity, you see? Understanding where we're at in this order, understanding eternity as best we can, will teach us to use whatever days that we have wisely for what? For Him, and not foolishly. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. See, this is a reminder of an infinite God and a very short life, on the other hand. And Moses is endeavoring to remind us through the inspiration of the Spirit that we should count our days and we should put our hands to what? To something that matters. Something that matters. Because very soon it'll all be over. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. What are your hands doing? Now, that can be literal, but I think it goes beyond that. I think this idea of what our hands are doing is what are we doing? Is what you're doing bringing honor to God? Not that he needs it, but because he deserves it. Is what you're doing bringing you closer to God? Not because he needs it, but because it's what's good for us. These are vital, important literally life-changing questions that we have to ask. Moses understood eternity as best as we seemingly can. And he said, we better number our days. And while we're numbering them, we better let God direct the work of our hands. And we understand how short of life that we have and how long that he has. Maybe when we understand eternity, we'll do the right thing. I have time for at least one more. So concept number five. God is infinite. So we've said God is self-sufficient. God is eternal. As in everlasting. And God is infinite. Those are two different things. God is limitless. Another thing we can't really understand. 
And another word that we use and misuse all the time. God has no bounds. He has no bookends. We use these words all the time. We'll say something's limitless, boundless energy. We'll talk about kids that way, boundless energy. Oh, there's a limit. That guy's got unlimited wealth. Oh, no, there's a limit. In fact, we as people, as human beings, with the little bit of God that he put inside of us, we like to do what? We like to count and understand everything, don't we? <coughs> That's what we're scurrying around doing all the time. Let's, let's see how long this is. Let's see how much deep this is. How much does this weigh? How much does that add up to? We do everything we can to describe the world as it is given. But we can't do that to God because he doesn't have bounds He doesn't have limits. And so over and over again in the Psalms and the Proverbs and in other places in the scripture, we see men who are just sitting here thinking about God. And we're trying as best we can to say, well, all creation's like the width of my hand. Is it literally the width of my hand? No, but that's the way of saying, I can't tell you how big it is, but it all fits in the palm of a hand. So it must be really big because we can't get it. God is infinite. We are not constantly frustrated by our boundaries, mainly time, as I said earlier, and our capabilities. Those are the two things that seem to frustrate us as people all the time. I want more time, like literally. And I want to be able to use the time more efficiently. I want to be able to do something that I can't do well. How satisfying then to know that we have a God who doesn't have these limits. A God who's not limited by time, is not limited by competencies or capabilities. A God who can do anything at any time, anywhere, and in any way he chooses. And often he chooses to do what? Use me to accomplish it. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. God is infinite. We cannot measure him. We cannot weigh him. We cannot even list all of his attributes. As I said before, we only know what he's revealed to us. And when we truly understand just how infinite that he is, it helps us understand, again, just how much he loves us. Take Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. How much is much more? Seemingly more than more, but we don't know. It's infinite. So when we think about the grace that God has given us, that we can have a relationship with him, that we can know him and he will know us, that we can live with him and have fellowship with him, that he has forgiven us, how much we can't even measure where sin did abound grace did much more his love for us is infinite because love is a part of who he is So I'm going to summarize here. I have a few more ready, but we'll save those for next week. 
God is incomprehensible. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But understand that everything that we try will not be totally sufficient. I cannot tell you how big he is because he doesn't have limits. But we should still try to understand. God reveals certain things about himself, some of which we're talking about. He's revealed to us that he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. doesn't need the angels. doesn't need heaven. doesn't need earth. He simply is. God is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. It simply all is. Past, present, and future is his. I don't know how else to describe this, but if you think about time on a line that goes across from my hand to my hand, this is how we think about time, isn't it? Well, you're born, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you die. And for God, it's like turned this way. It's all happening at once. It just simply is, because he's outside of it. He's eternal. He simply is. And we simply are not. And then God is infinite. He's limitless. He can do and does do whatever it is that he wants. He doesn't need us to partake in it, but he wants us to. And so sincerely think about what this means for your life. That there is a God... That very nature itself, as we talked about in Romans chapter 1, reveals to the world. You can deny it all day long, but he is real, and deep down inside, you know it. No matter how much you want to argue against it. And if that is true, and it is, nature reveals certain things about him. That he's all-powerful, that he's eternal, that he's infinite, that he is all that there is that needs to be. And what does that say about me in comparison? I'm literally nothing. And yet, he chose to love me. And he continues to choose to love me, even though I continue to let him down. Now that is a God. That is something that I can spend my entire life trying to understand and never can. And at some point, I just have to raise my hands and say, God, I don't understand, but thank you. I don't understand why your grace abounds much more. I don't understand how you can not have a limit, but somehow you do. I don't understand why you choose to love me, but you do. This is what should move us. This is what should have us count our days. This is what should make us wonder, what are we doing? What are we doing here? What are we doing right now? Let's bring it down to a level that we understand as humans. What will you be doing an hour from now? What will you be doing tomorrow? Because that's how we function in time. Will it be something that honors God? Or will it not be? Because we only have so many days and we're done. 
Will it be something that brings us closer to God? Or will it be something that moves us away from Him? These are all the choices that we have to face. I think some of these concepts without listing them quite like this was exactly what happened to me when I got saved. I knew some of these things as abstract principles because I grew up in church and I was taught them, kind of. But as I've studied for this, as I've read this, what I realized is after the church service was over that I was at, and I knew something was wrong inside of me. And I walked outside the doors and I made it about 25 or 30 feet before I fell to my knees that somehow all of this, maybe not in these words, but these concepts weighed on me. And I realized, who am I that you care about me? And in realizing that I am absolutely nothing in the face of God's infinity, in the face of God's timelessness, in the face of all of God's power, that he somehow loved me, that he sent his son to die for me, I had two choices. I could get up and walk away, or I could give in. I almost couldn't help but give in. Because I realized I was nothing without him and that he loved me infinity. That he loved me with all of his power. Why? Because he chose to. And I repented right there. I gave up. I literally in tears cried unto him, God, forgive me. And he did. And you see, that's the part that's incomprehensible. I don't really understand what happened there. I don't know why he chose to forgive me. Because I don't deserve it. He doesn't need it. But that's what grace is. And that's what love is. And that's what mercy is. And in that puddle of tears, in that spot, God let me touch him as best as I can on this side. And he saved my soul. And things have been different since then. Not perfect, but different. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to come face to face with who he is, realize who we are, and fall on our face and ask for forgiveness, to put our faith in him. Something that we can't touch or see, but we know is true. That's what faith is. And if you have never done that, If you have never experienced the saving grace of God, then I invite you to stop and consider today. It's not a formula. It's not a handshake. It's not just coming down here and crying. It's truly seeking Him. And if you've never done that, and He's reminding you today of that, if He's telling you inside then you need to. You need to seek him, the one who's incomprehensible, the one who is eternity, the one who is self-fulfilling, the one who is infinite. And keep coming back, and I'll keep adding these things. But understand, until you finally submit to him, 
You're just fighting against him. And so as we have a song, I want to give an opportunity. If you need to submit to him, and do it. You can fight it. You can push it off. But when you number your days, who's to say you have tomorrow? So let's have a hymn, a time for anyone who'd like to come to seek the Lord, to spend time thinking about the incomprehensible, the one who is eternal, the one who is infinite, the one who doesn't need anything. Listen to what he has to tell you because he wants to tell you something.